as long as we are still here, we still enjoy the fact that human beings do wonderful things. We create beautiful art, we make music, and we can love. And as long as we can do those things, let's do whatever we can, whatever it's going to take to try to prolong that existence and maybe ensure its survival. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you, hear their struggles, and then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. Alan Weissman's book, Countdown, changed my strategy to the environment, and I've been working on it for a long time. It ranks among the most influential works I've read, watched, or come across, up there with limits to growth. Why? Because when you look at environmental issues enough, and it shouldn't take long these days, population always rises to the top as one of the top issues. Many people today hear about projections that the population will level off around 10 billion, somewhere around 2100. Actually, the ones I see project that the population will keep increasing by then, just at a slower rate. If you look at only one issue, only climate, only deforestation, only extinctions, or only one thing at a time, each seems possibly solvable, but they're all linked. Also, since nothing deliberate limits population growth, we're lucky if it levels off. That is, it's not deliberate. We just happen to get lucky. And cultural changes could promote more growth. I mean, there are many populations that are promoting maximum growth today. Very powerful religions, autocratic rulers, for example. I don't want to rely on luck for our species' survival. And all these things, climate, deforestation, extinctions, when you look at them together, if we work on one, we can't work on the other fully. And so it doesn't all work out. We can't solve everything at once. Besides, all my research into what the Earth can sustain says that we're way over the limit. If we're headed toward a cliff, simply maintaining our speed and not accelerating doesn't stop us. We have to decelerate. Despite the convergence of all these issues, I held back from talking about population, however important it looked to me. People don't like others meddling in their personal lives. I certainly don't. Also, people overwhelmingly associate population talk with China's one-child policy, with eugenics, with Nazis. Frankly, I did too. When I heard people talking about population, I thought, well, what can we do about it? I knew of no cases where people successfully stopped it. I didn't see how I could improve a situation by suggesting to avoid misery later by adopting misery now. Now, I did know that there are cultures, island nations that lived centuries or longer, isolated from other places. You know, there are places where you'd have an island that could have a population of 10,000 and they would stay that way for hundreds or sometimes thousands of years. So that's one example. The Bushmen in Southern Africa which I read about in the book, Affluence Without Abundance, their archaeological record went back hundreds of thousands of years. That meant that these places, these nations or these regions, they kept their populations level, stably somehow. So they must have developed some mechanism. And if you listen to past episodes of this podcast with Jared and Gaza, for example, I pondered aloud how to find out how they did it. Something did it. I couldn't figure out how. I could only wonder what worked and I couldn't promote what I didn't know. Alan's book, Countdown, changed all that. 
Allen found and reported on numerous examples in today's world, in the 21st and 20th centuries, of cultures lowering their birth rates without coercion, without top-down government authority, no forced abortions, no tearing down people's homes, voluntarily, desired by all participants, leading to abundance, prosperity, peace, and cultural stability, the opposite of where overpopulation is taking us. His book, Countdown, tells stories of 21 places, I think it was 21, some promoting growth where the results aren't pretty, and some where they've lowered birth rates and they're remarkably pleasant. He talks about the top ones that he reported on in this episode, among many other things. The book before that, which was The World Without Us, I'll let you listen to the episode to hear about that one. We have tough times ahead of us. We humans, we, well, many living creatures. One change could simplify everything. A smaller population achieved voluntarily, peaceful, joyfully. Alan opened up this as a possibility for something I couldn't see before. Here's Alan. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Alan Weissman. Alan, how are you? Well, I'm as well as one can be in the 21st century. I'm looking out at a major ice storm that is tearing branches off of trees in the uh, forests that surrounds my home in western Massachusetts. It, it does look pretty, I must say, so you know, there are some compensations. Yeah, I was going to ask, I mean, nature in your writings comes off as, has the potential, especially untouched nature seems very beautiful. And I wasn't sure if you were describing something annoying or beautiful or both and all these things. Um, today, it's it's kind of both. Uh, when what should have been a snowstorm in prior times turns into a sleet storm, it becomes very hazardous for walking. It becomes very hazardous because large branches break off of trees and land on rooftops or on top of cars or on top of people. But as I'm looking out my window, the branches are now covered with a little coating of ice. There's a gentle snow falling and it looks kind of magical. So I guess the answer in that is, you know, whatever we do to nature, nature can probably handle you know, in its own fashion. And ultimately, you know, nature is going to come out on top of whatever we do to it. Um, it, it has bounced back rather beautifully from all prior major extinction events. And I think it will from even the one that we are perpetrating at the moment. I'm kind of curious, how did you decide in Western Massachusetts? Your books, you, you've been all around the world. You've visited many places and cultures. Well, I have lived, I've lived in many places in the world. My U.S. address for most of my adult life was in Arizona. For some family reasons, my wife and I needed to relocate in the East about 10 years ago. I have always lived, whether it was Arizona or where I'm living presently, uh, in as beautiful places as I can. Uh, in fact, that even predates me getting to Arizona. I grew up in Minnesota, and when I was a kid, I lived on a, the edge of a wonderful marshland, which was my playground. It's uh, I mean, back then we called it the swamp. Today, the elegant term is a wetland, but it was just you know filled with wildlife, and it was just a beautiful scene out my window. 
And then the first place I lived when I was really on my own alone was on a lake in Minnesota. Again, just gorgeous edge of a maple forest. And I guess most people live in cities now all over the world. And they want to get away, take a vacation. They go out to the country or they go out to the wilderness. I've always kind of done it backwards. Uh, I've always lived where two steps away I can be surrounded by forest uh, or someplace beautiful. And uh, when I vacation, I like to go to cities, take advantage of all the wonderful things that you can do in a city. Oh, well, let me know when you come to New York. Okay. I was just there recently. I'll be back. So. I'm hearing from you something that I believe factors very heavily into your writing. And there's a lot of people approaching the environment and many from different places. And I read from you something that maybe I'm projecting because of what's important to me. I mean, I got into, I have a PhD in physics and my pursuit of science was always, or it was rooted in, in the beauty of nature and, and seeing beauty at deeper and deeper levels. And I feel like there's a, an aesthetic beauty uh, that I read from you is Am I reading that right? Is that one of the biggest things you see or that, that you appreciate in nature is like a, a feeling of beauty? You know, it, there are only a few ways that we can replenish our souls when we are feeling down or when we are feeling empty. For me, I mean, I'll just mention three. Somebody could come up with others. But one is to be with people you love, of course. Another is to be surrounded by magnificent art, uh, which is what I do when I go to cities. I always land in, land in a museum at one time or another. But the third, uh, which is where I choose to live, is surrounded by nature. There is nothing like being in a natural setting, starting with the quality of the air that you breathe, and then simply the undefinable, you know, visual impact. And I said that it's undefinable, and then I went ahead and limited by saying visual, but it's so much more than that because it's certainly auditory and it's certainly sensory. I mean, you feel it with your skin when you're surrounded by trees or water or a grassland, flowers, birds flying around you, an encounter with another mammal, it affects you on a level that is beautiful and mysterious. You know, there's a wonderful line in one of Yeats's poems where he just says, beautiful, comma, mysterious. And those are two such overused words, but the context in which he used him use them is exactly what I'm describing right now. When you go into nature, you are overcome by beauty and you can't quite define what that feeling is. But when you enter it, rather than trying to limit it by defining it, you deepen it by being part of it. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah. I mean, in some sense, it, it answers it very thoroughly. And in other senses, it's, it's, it feels like just the beginning I mean, I just finished two of your books, and I feel like, especially the world without us, that you're what you're talking about. I feel like the book is in part an ex trying to express that of the nature that's out there. I mean, many other things as well. Actually, I'm going to give some context to your books 
to listeners who haven't heard of them and how I came to them. So, I mean, the environment has been a big thing for me. I mean, not just to passively observe, but to act on, particularly since reading the book Limits to Growth, the 30-year update about 20 years ago. And when I read that, it it framed things in a way that before that, I thought there's a whole lot of separate things that were seemed important, but this put it together in a way. I was like, oh, this is really important. And yeah, I, I, I get that. I think Limits to Growth is simply one of the most important books that has ever been written. It's amazing because it, it was a couple of computer modelers yeah. who sort of looked at everything going on the planet and said, uh-oh, look at all this stuff that's happening and all these graphs are about to intersect. And before then, before reading that, I I had the sense of everyone talking about, like, there's population is an issue and pollution is an issue and deforestation is an issue. And all of them seemed separately potentially solvable. And it always seemed to me like, but wait, they're all fit together. And if you if you work on one, it takes away resources to work on another and they all interrelate. And this was the first, when I read it, I felt like, it felt like coming home for me because I had taken classes in dynamical systems and some things like that. And I felt, oh, this is the way to do it. This is the way to approach this. And they actually did it. Like they didn't just say this is how to do it, but they created the model. They looked up the data. And that told me this is very important. This is and there's something I can do. And at the root of it, and not that there's any one thing. I mean, a systems perspective means there's not just one thing, but population seemed very, very important. Well, you know, my you mentioned that you read two of my books. I'm uh, I'm guessing that the other one besides the World Without Us was my last book, Countdown. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, and and Countdown basically picks up on a question that I left hanging at the end of the World Without Us, which is how many people can fit on the head of one planet without capsizing it, and if that number turns out to be you know, no more than what we are right now or actually fewer than what we are right now. Is there a way to humanely bring our population down? I mean, not do something as draconian, uh, detestable as the um, Chinese one-child policy that, you know, even the Chinese didn't like it. But is there something, is there an alternative? And for that matter, is there an alternative that's acceptable to the wide range of the world's nationalities, tribes, religions, etc. And I ended up going to 21 countries to solve that part of the of the the question, but ultimately after that book came out, one of the questions that I would get from interviewers all the time was do you think that population is the biggest environmental problem? And my response is if there weren't so many of us, would we even have any environmental problems? I mean, population is kind of the mother load of this thing for reasons that you and I can talk about, you know, that I explain in that book. The population of our species, Homo sapiens, suddenly quadrupled inside of a single century, the 20th century. And that has never happened to any species bearing an insect in the history of biology. So there's no question that our numbers and our demands for things that we need, food and energy, to keep going are simply overwhelming the planet and pushing a whole lot of other species 
off of it because it takes an awful lot of space and just to grow the food that we eat, which another way of thinking of space is the habitat for all those other creatures. So no wonder we're perpetrating a major extinction event at this point. So anytime we're dealing with the environment, if we're not accepting the fact that there are too many people on the planet and we'd like to find a way to deal with that without doing something really awful like um, genocide, culling, or having another world war, uh, you know, that's, that's part of the mix. As you say, all these things are connected. Yes, very sober. And before I read the book, Actually, the reason I read the book was I was commenting something on population on some web forum somewhere, and someone said you should read Countdown. And why I consider Countdown the most influential book to me since Limits to Growth, and I've read a lot, and I've done a lot, and I've watched a lot of videos and things like that, is that you – so you approach that question, and I urge everyone to read the book, that it it was very encouraging to me because of examples that you gave that I'd never heard of. And when someone talked to me about population before – I couldn't help but think what everyone thinks, it seems, which is, oh, you want a one-child policy? You want forced abortions? You want to tear down people's homes when, when they have too many kids? Or, oh, you want eugenics, you know, like the Nazis? And it's like a knee-jerk response from virtually everyone, including myself. Like, I can't take myself out of that. I also felt that way. And so I couldn't bring it up as a topic because it was, it was one, it got knee-jerk responses that didn't go in a useful direction. But I, I couldn't say, like, if the if the cure was worse than, was as bad as a disease, I couldn't really promote that. And you shared examples that I'd never heard of, Thailand and Iran and places where people had gone from very high population growth, or uh, I should say birth rates, to below replacement. And I think it was in your book, but it was somewhere around when I was reading it, where I can't, where someone had said that a few pop, a few generations of, all right, is this possible to make happen? That's a good question. But a few generations of 1.5 children per per woman, globally, and we're back down to where we were before artificial fertilizer and Haber Bosch processes. Well, by some some people would say, grew like saved a, a billions of lives, but or you could say enabled lives that wouldn't have happened otherwise, and in the process big dead zones off the mouths of rivers and depleting aquifers and, thing, and, and topsoil and things like that. The examples that you gave, did you know that you would find the examples that you found? Did I know before I started doing this book? Well, no, I actually, you know, kind of just asked the question, you know, let me backtrack a little bit uh, as to, you know, how I came to write this book. And I have to go back to the prior book, The World Without Us. And you know, that book, I kind of played a sneaky trick uh, that that really worked. I mean, I had been traveling as a journalist to many parts of the world and seeing, you know, bad environmental disasters, seeing environmental disasters, either from Chernobyl to mowed down rainforests to the melting Arctic to the ozone hole over Antarctica. And and I began to understand that these were not just discrete events, but 
they were all related to to my own species behavior on this planet. And so I wanted to write a book about this global environmental crisis that humans were causing. But immediately when you know you say something like that, that just sounds so depressing. And it also sounds so frightening. Uh, you know, that's the reason why most people don't read environmental books, except for people who are already interested in the environment. Because, you know, who wants to spend your precious leisure time being told that we're all going to die unless something changes real fast? And after pondering that for two or three years, you know, how to, how to write something that wouldn't automatically disqualify it from being read by the audience I wanted to reach, a chance comment by a, a, an editor I was talking to made me realize wow, well, if the bottom line is that, you know, we're scared we're all going to die, well, why not just kill everybody off right in the beginning so you don't have to worry about that anymore? And But then you get to see what happens next. So I, I posed this hypothetical question. Suppose something happened to the human race that just wiped us out but left everything else intact. And theoretically, it is possible. For example, the AIDS virus, which is now passed by fluids, if it were mutated and went airborne. It's homo sapien specific, so it so it, it would only kill us off and wouldn't kill anything else off. Let's just remove us, see how nature would perform. It turns out that nature performs rather brilliantly when relieved of all the pressures that we're just constantly piling on top of it. And I was able to show in that book how uh, once we are gone and we're not maintaining our infrastructure, starting with our own houses. And any, any homeowner knows that the minute you turn your back, nature is trying to invade. There's a leak in the roof or insects are getting in or plants are, just, are, are tearing down your foundation. Without our constant maintenance of our, our houses and then even our cities, such as the one that you're in right now, which I devote a chapter to, and it's not me making this stuff up. I mean, I'm a journalist. Uh, I'm not a science fiction writer, but I interviewed engineers all over the city of New York, from the ones who maintain the subways to the ones who maintain the bridges to the ones who, who design buildings and anchor them best they can so nature is not going to uh, disturb their foundations. But it turns out if we are not around, the subways flood immediately, I'd say, you know, within 36 hours, because there's so much groundwater that they're always having to pump away in New York. This, this litany of stuff, you remove us in 500 years hence, New York is going to be a, already a forest with, you know, with the ruins of buildings and uh, you know, you add a few thousand more years, and those ruins are are going to be laid pretty low. This is, of course, assuming that you know the the, the parts of it that aren't aren't underwater. Anyhow, I went to all different kinds of ecosystems to see what would happen without human beings. Uh, very other continents, I you know farmlands. I looked at things like our nuclear plants, what would happen if they get unmanned, what disasters will they leave behind them, all of this stuff. And it turns out, again, that nature eventually will recover from all of our actions. It's going to 
wipe out or at least bury our scars, and it will really be beautiful. But my reason for writing that book was not that I want a world without us. I'd like to have a world with us. I I enjoy being a human being, and I enjoy other human beings, and uh, it's just that, you know, like, how can we possibly be in balance with the rest of nature? And while pondering that, I was finishing up my book, and I was just thinking, you know, like, what, what, what haven't I explored? And it occurred to me to find out, well, is there anybody who would like the human race to disappear? You know, some of you have heard this, you know, like we're a cancer or, or we're acne or something like that on the planet. Anyhow, I found this group called the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. They're on the Internet. They're in several different languages. I talked to the director, and he said to me at one point that he said, basically what we believe is that Homo sapiens was a good idea for a long time. We did all this beautiful stuff, but now we're simply overwhelming the planet. We're bringing down so many other species that pretty soon we're going to eliminate something that we won't realize was essential to our own existence, but it'll be too late, and then we will go extinct as well. So the only ethical and moral thing to do right now is to stop having babies completely because uh, if we do that within a century, we will go extinct, but at least we won't be dragging any more species with us. And he said, you know, think of it, you know, every decade as the world became more natural, as there were fewer of us, it would become wilder, more beautiful, and the last humans would see the Garden of Eden restored on the planet, which was kind of the whole topic of my book, Except, again, I wanted a world still with us, but instead of in mortal combat with the rest of nature, in harmony with it. So I decided in the epilogue, uh, which originally, in my mind, it was just going to talk about some of the ways that we could be you know, better inhabitants of this planet. I decided that I'd better look to see if there's some kind of happy medium between what this guy was suggesting, no more babies or what we're doing right now. So I didn't know for sure what we were doing right now, so I checked with the UN Population Fund, which is kind of the demographic central for all all demographic statisticians and demographers all over the world. And they said that births minus death, we add about 84 million people a year, which is kind of a hard figure to grasp. It's it's a little bit too big for our minds. It's abstract. So by stroke of whatever, it occurred to me to divide that figure by 365. And then something really popped out that I got. It showed that every 4.3, and it's not out of 4.2 days, just a little over four days, every four days, we're adding a million people to the planet which did not sound like a sustainable figure. So at the end of the the World Without Us in the epilogue, I point that out, and I also asked one of the premier demographic institutions in the world, which is in Vienna, what would happen if, just setting aside all the social issues, if we all participated in the Chinese one-child policy starting 
you know, next year, which would have been 2008, because that book came out in 2007. And they reported back, after crunching the numbers, that our population would continue to increase for a while, because even when you stop having no more than one child per fertile woman, there's still so many people who have already been born that that will increase population. But then when you start getting the die-off behind as older people pass away, within a little over a generation and a half, suddenly you will have an abrupt drop-off. So that meant by the middle of the century, and if we did this right now, that would mean somewhere in the 2060s, uh, late 2060s, we would start to see an abrupt drop-off. And then by around the end of the century, we'd be pretty much back to where we were in 1900 before, as you mentioned, we learned how to create artificial nitrogen fertilizer, which greatly increased the amount of plant life food that this planet could grow, which before was limited to just a few nitrogen-fixing plants uh, that could add that important nutrient to, to soil. And then later, that was confined, that was um, complicated further by the Green Revolution, which invented these dwarf cereal grains that put more energy into producing more grains than into having a long stock. That's you know, and anyhow, that was, it was very interesting to know that instead of you know, 7 billion plus, by the end of the century, we could be down to slightly under 2 billion. That would give a lot of space for other creatures. That would give us an awful lot of space. But again, the problem, no one likes the Chinese one-child policy. But I left that question hanging, and a lot of readers or people when I was giving talks would say to me, yeah, you're right, we can't keep growing on a planet that doesn't grow. But, I mean, what do we do? So that's what I set out to find out in Countdown. And lo and behold, there were several alternatives that in different cultures that worked extremely well. Uh, we can talk about Iran if you would like, because that one actually brought down the fertility rate, uh, the birth rate, brought it down to replacement rate, which is roughly two children because it takes two people to make a baby, so when you only have two children, then you've essentially replaced yourselves. Iran was able to accomplish that a year faster than China's one-child policy, and they did it with a total vol- totally voluntary program. Yeah, to me, I mean, Iran and Thailand seemed to be the big ones of, I mean, it seemed to create prosperity, and it seemed to be joyful, and I mean, in the Thailand case, it seemed like fun, and it gave me a new vocabulary and perspective to look at these things. I, between Iran and Thailand, I'm, I'm, either one would be great to hear more. Yeah, and in fact, there's a third one in there, too, that that I should mention because I, I sprinkle it throughout the book. It's there by inference, and then I mention it right in, in the beginning of the acknowledgments to the book because particularly here in the West, what usually springs to mind is, you know, the Catholic Church. and um, you know, they're not going to permit this stuff. And in fact, one chapter in this book is set in the Vatican, which is a country, it's an independent country, it's a population of about a thousand, 999 of them are gray-haired men. And you know, they've got these, and 
if there's time, if you want. Well, I go into it in the book. I explain why the Catholic Church can't establish that policy of um, no birth control and why once they established it, they can't change it. I mean, you know, very briefly. The same time that they established the, the policy of no birth control was right around when, through convulsions in 19th century Europe, the, the Vatican lost all of its land. It used to be a papal state and then just became this one little city. It's about a tenth of a square mile. And and so to become powerful, they established something called papal infallibility. That concept did not exist before. And unfortunately, an, infa- an infallible pope said that you can't have birth control. You can't use birth control. So they can't change it, because if they were to change it, then it would mean that the Pope was fallible after all. There's a long, rich story about how that happened. I won't won't take the time to go into it. But the point here being is that the Catholic Church is surrounded by this other Catholic country called Italy, uh, which has one of the lowest birth rates in the world. And... um, I think the best way to explain why that is, is particular in Italy, is I'm going to go to the Iran story because you'll hear the relationship. But there's another one that I mentioned, the acknowledgments, and that's a story in Mexico, which instituted family planning in the 1970s because they knew they had this terrible problem. And a very brilliant uh, television producer came up with a series of soap operas. Soap operas are the telenovela in Mexico. You know that's like the national pastime. And in this telenovela, which was called um, "Acompáñame, Come with Me," uh, it featured a couple of different families. One of which, one which had this big macho father who kept saying, "You know, I want more kids. I want more sons." and uh, you can't use birth control. And then another one that had fewer kids, and it was a much more prosperous family, easier to control. And, and through you, know, you saw these exciting episodes with these really great characters. It was very, very well done, where the woman would finally get up the nerve to fight with her macho husband, etc. The, the point being that in the 10 years that that thing ran and the viewership of it just climbed and climbed and climbed, the birth rate in Mexico dropped and dropped and dropped 34%. So that's just another very happy story. The example of Iran is wonderful because everybody in the West thinks of Iran as this evil country. What happened in Iran was that in 1979, there was this Islamic revolution. And, you know, we all know that story here. What happened immediately after, though, within months, is that Iraq attacked them. Uh, Saddam Hussein, who was then running Iraq, wanted to grab this oil-rich province on their border that he figured would be easy pickings because this country was just reorganizing itself. Iraq at the time was a NATO ally, and NATO provided Iraq with arms, and those arms, unfortunately, included the um, the materials you need to make nerve gas. Iran only had bodies to throw against this well-armed enemy. So it, the Ayatollah asked every 
fertile woman in Iran to do her patriotic duty and to help build a 20 million man army to fight off the invaders. And at one point during the eight years of that war, the Iranian birth rate probably was the highest in human history. It was pushing between nearly eight children, children per woman. But at the end of the war, a very visionary economist, and I rarely use those two words in the sentence, uh, a visionary economist who was the director of planning and budget for Iran went to the Ayatollah and he said, we have a serious problem. He says, because all of these kids who were born during this population boom, in 10, 15 years, they're going to all need jobs and our economy will not be able to provide them. And any country that's got a lot of unemployed young men becomes destabilized because they become angry and frustrated. I mean, he could have been describing Pakistan, which is one of the 21 countries that I went to, which is was a recipient of the Green Revolution. And as you alluded earlier, what happens when you have a Green Revolution and everyone's saved from famine is that everyone who's saved from famine uh, survives to have more children, and those more children need food. And, and anyhow, you've got a country right now, Pakistan, has got over 200 million people in a land that's the size of Texas, which only has 26 million people. And by the middle to the end of this century, it's going to have more people than the entire United States today has. And it'll still be the size of Texas. And it's got all these unemployed young men. So anyone wonders why Pakistan is always a breeding ground for terrorists. Well, that kind of answers your question. You know, it's very easy to recruit angry, frustrated young men. So what Iran did to avoid that, and this, by the way, was in 1989, uh, 1990, and so the, the Chinese program had already been going on for 10 years and already some of the terrible abuses like infanticide or, you know, as, as you mentioned earlier, literally bulldozing the houses of people who dared to get pregnant twice. They wanted to avoid that stuff in, the, in Iran. So the program that they came up with was, was, first of all, a publicity campaign, much like the Mexican one, showing billboards with a big, poor family and a prosperous family with only one or two kids in all kinds of banners saying that it was a good idea to consider limiting your family, but they made it completely voluntary. Uh, even though they were providing every form of birth control from condoms up to tubal ligations for women or vasectomies for men, they were, they were applying this free of charge. In fact, one of the, everywhere in the country, yeah, well, everywhere in the country, one of the first people I met when I went to Iran was a very devout Muslim woman uh, who's an OBGYN, uh, and she told me about how they would go on horseback to these remote villages and later on with four-wheel drive or helicopters, and they would bring all of these uh, birth control items with them. Uh, including, you know, amount of surgical theater. And she said women would just line up. They were exhausted from having babies. But she said, and I, I later confirmed this by talking to demographers and going to visit various places all, all through the country, that the two important things that they did was tell people, it is your choice. You can have the number of children that you you know that, that you feel is 
you know you can take care of. The only requirement was for couples uh, to attend pre-matrimonial classes, which is not a bad idea for anybody, actually. The Quakers do this, too. And in those classes, which you could go to them either at a mosque or in a clinic, people would learn how much does it cost to feed, educate, clothe, uh, raise a child. And that certainly got through to a lot of people, but the other super important thing they did, and this also explains what I, what I mentioned about Italy earlier, is that they encourage girls to stay in school because it happens that rich country, poor country, Catholic, Protestant, Muslim, you name it, the best contraception in the world is an educated woman because you get a girl through high school, she will have something interesting and useful to do with her life, something she can economically you know, support her family with. But it's very, very hard to hold down a job if you've got more than you know, seven kids hanging on your skirts. So any time you are educating women on the average, they have between one and two children. Some of them choose to have no children, but the average is between one and two. Like you said before, it's about one and a half. And if we did that universally, you know, we would bring down our population within two, three generations to something that would be very, very manageable. In Iran's case, it took them nine years to reach replacement rate. That's a year faster than China's one-child policy because there were plenty of ways of sneaking around the one-child policy. Whereas in, in Iran, there was no reason to sneak around. I mean, it's funny. Psychologically, you tell people you can only have one child, and everybody resists having a government coming into their bedroom and telling them what to do. But if you say it's okay to have two, they, people kind of relax. And I, sh- I should also quickly add, you know, when people sometimes say to me, yeah, but I've always wanted a big family. I grew up in one big family. They're so beautiful. I mentioned that the little town of Massachusetts where I live, the happiest family I know has nine kids, two of them biological, seven of them adopted. Uh, it's one resource that we are not running out of children who need a home. So there's, yes, there is a way to have a big family. It just completely changed the picture for me to see multiple successes. And I'd like to look at the emotional side of things that people are happier. People are choosing. There's not coercion. I had no idea. And until that was there, it was, what could I do? Like, be miserable now to avoid misery later? It makes tremendous sense. You know, you have the number of babies you can, you can responsibly care for. Just don't worry as much as when you've got too many mouths to feed. In a Buddhist context, this same thing worked in, in Thailand. It was, in Thailand, it was based mainly around the condom because Thailand has had a major sex industry as an economic pillar of its country ever since the Vietnam War. I mean, you know, we kind of created that over there. We would send soldiers there for their R&R, you know, when they were their vacation during combat duty. And it originally became, you know, condoms were to help control an HIV problem that they had in the country. But the person who was implementing it who was also working in development, would go to these villages and he'd be swarmed by kids and he would realize Thailand can never develop if 
they have if all these villages are just so overpopulated. And so he instituted a program throughout Thailand, just making sort of making a fetish out of the condom. And it was done in a couple of ways. First of all, having uh, Buddhist monks, the most prominent ones in the country, bless condoms, and then making jokes about them all over the country, going to towns and like starting to do what any adolescent kid has done. You know, you blow up the condom and then you have a condom and everybody laughs. So you have a condom blowing up contest. And basically it's sort of desensitizing people to the idea of condom as being a sexual object, a lurid object and making it just something that, oh yeah, this is just something that we can use to protect our health and also to you know, keep our families of man- manageable sizes. And Thailand came down to replacement rate. These are great stories. Does everyone respond? You've talked to a lot of people who've read your book and responded. I mean, there's also all the stories of Niger and other places that the West Bank and how do people respond? Is it because for me, it's it suddenly here's hope, here's a model, small cases relative to the whole world. But to me, the way to solve a big problem is if you have a solution that works on a small scale is to learn from that, try it again, try it again. How do other people respond? Are, are they as enthusiastic as I am? I mean, cautiously so, of course. Well, you know, it's, it's such a loaded topic. I was warned by my agent, don't write a book about population, man. You know, you're stepping into a minefield. And of course, I had to step into the minefield because that minefield, like I say, it's, you know, it underlies all the other problems we're having. You know, the environment would be in fine shape if we were still at a million, a billion and a half people the way we were in 1900, you know, or certainly in much better shape than it is right now. The responses I've gotten have, you know, there there have been a variety of them. I would say the majority of them are gratitude, you know, the same way that you are expressing. Yes, it is so great to know that there are humane alternatives to a drastic policy like China's one-child policy. There, you know, when I went to the Vatican, I was certainly jousting with, you know, the guy, the bishop who was in charge of the environment for the Vatican is an African bishop. And right now, Africa is the only place in the world that the Catholic Church is still growing because they are trying to, I mean, they have a lot of power and a lot of governments, you know, particularly in West Africa, and they keep birth control as limited as possible. So I'm, you know, I'm sitting there arguing with a Catholic bishop over this whole thing. And, you know, he's talking to me about, he says, you know, no birth control is permitted in the church. How can you say that it's not? But it turns out what he's talking about is the rhythm method. And then, and anybody who's read this chapter is horrified because he then describes having, you know, taken classes in it himself in a particular form of the rhythm method and, uh, you know, which involves testing vaginal mucus. And he talks about that in sort of intimate detail. And I just leave that implication hanging there. You know, given what has happened in the Catholic Church in recent years, Catholic Church simply has has relinquished its authority on moral matters, shall we say. 
Now, that is not to disparage all Catholics. One of my greatest mentors in life was a Catholic priest, uh, and I will always cherish what he taught me, and how he helped set my moral compass. But frankly, you know, it's in that chapter, the Church hoists itself by its own petard. So dispensing with that issue has been fairly simple. You mentioned eugenics before, and there was an interesting controversy. While I was researching the book, I had a lot of talk with feminists who had some real issues with birth control being, the idea that birth control might be imposed to help uh, control population and therefore help control uh, environmental destruction. That to them sounded like appropriating control over women's bodies for an ulterior motive or for the idea of doing it for the environment, but the, but the ulterior motive was simply maintaining control over women, which was a legitimate concern in some ways. I mean, women have had to fight way too much to assert their rights on this planet. And yet it was interesting that the example that they oftentimes used was a cherry-picked example. Before China's one-child policy, there were two other really drastic population control efforts. And both of them, well, the first one was, it was directed against women. And that was on the island of Puerto Rico in the 1930s. Uh, Puerto Rico's population exploded when it became a U.S. colony, basically, after the turn of the century. And, and they started experimenting in the 1930s to try to keep down the numbers, because it's a pretty small island. It's only 35 miles by 100 miles. So they experimented, didn't experiment, they imposed forced um, sterilizations on women in Puerto Rico. The word operacion, operation, when you say it in Puerto Rico, it refers to getting your tubes tied. Everyone knows it. And later on, when the birth control pill was first being tested out, we also used Puerto Rico uh, as a testing lab, and Puerto Rican women were uh, guinea pigs. This is what Puerto Rico is a long, dark chapter in U.S. history. And when you say testing with very high amounts of, of hormones... They figured out, I mean, ultimately, you know, the amount of estrogen that is used in birth control pills now is it's about one hundredth of the original uh, test in Puerto Rico. And there were a lot of sick women and a few fatalities in Puerto Rico as a result of, uh, of those tests. And, and, you know, the forced, I mentioned the forced uh, sterilizations. I mean, women would go to a clinic, you know, because they had a cold or something like that, and they would come out with their tubes tied. It was... It was pretty awful. But the, the cherry-picked example that, that women often think about was just before China's one-child policy in the mid-1970s, there was a forced sterilization program in India. Uh, Indira Gandhi's uh, son, Sanjay, was in, in charge of that one. And you know, around 7 to 8 million women were forcibly sterilized. The reason why I say it was cherry-picked is that about the same number or even more men were forcibly vasectomized. 
So it, it was the only thing good that can be said about that program is that it did not discriminate by gender. But it was pretty horrific, and it was the reason why Indira Gandhi was finally brought down as a politician in in, in India. Anything force enforced by governments, humans are going to react against. I certainly hope that humans react soon against the wave of demagogueries that is now sweeping the planet, including in my own country. But a lot of women were very, very, were vociferous about population control. And frankly, that phrase population control is now, it's like many racial slurs that we didn't know that were racial slurs. Example being the word oriental, which simply means Eastern. Today, you just can't refer to a person by that word because it's just not acceptable. The word population, the phrase population control is no longer acceptable. We say family planning, we say reproduction rights, we say things that take into account a woman's role in deciding how many children she wants to have, which is the way that it absolutely should be. But this got to be so bad that in 1992 for the Earth Summit in Rio, which was the first great meeting of planetary, of countries around the planet to decide what can be done to save our environment, because of pressure from the Catholic Church, which was joined by many women's groups and was joined by the government of the United States, population was not on the agenda. The person who organized the uh, the Rio conference, Maurice Strong, ardently wanted it to be there, and he was voted down. So how absurd. When people look at Rio and they say, wow, 20 years ago, 1992, we got together the Rio conference, and look, nothing happened. Well, you want to know the reason? I just told you. Population was not on the agenda. So these days... Women's groups have sort of quieted down on this because it's pretty obvious, one, that there are too many people on the planet because we are in an unprecedented environmental crisis in the history of our species. And number two, it's become more and more obvious that the best way to empower women is to this double-pronged thing of educating them and giving them access to family planning so they can determine their and stay in control of how many and when they have their children. If we did that universally throughout the world, gave every woman access to birth control devices or means and education by the middle of the century, instead of nine points, six billion people, we'd probably be a billion fewer. But we're a long way from getting there. How has it affected your life personally? Or how has it affected the people around you? Is it leading to people changing their behaviors, you know, in America, in your life that you see? Well, yeah, I I mean, you know, there's this tremendous movement now to respond to an urgent environmental problem. Uh, The world is bursting it seems. The best way to explain this is is another question that I oftentimes would get uh, about my book Countdown as well. Isn't it not population? Isn't it really consumption? You know, because 
you know, people in the developed world use 66 more times uh, stuff and energy and uh, than you know people in poor countries, which is of course true. To understand impact, you have to multiply population times times consumption and also times technology because it's technology that sort of jet propels everything that we do. But when you think about consumption, everybody at first thinks about, you know, all these consumer goods and, oh, yeah, I should probably order less from Amazon and all that. But it really comes down to this. What are the two biggest by far items of consumption in the planet? And it turns out that they are both things that we homo sapiens are addicted to, every one of us. One of them is food. We can't live without it. And the other one is energy. I mean, there was a time before, you know, we discovered coal first, you know, that we just, energy was, you know, burning burning wood. But then we found this concentrated form of energy in the ground, in the form of coal, and then in the form of oil. And then we learned how to tap gas that was always present around oil. And these forms... You know, this was energy that was so concentrated because nature didn't need this energy to run nature's natural cycle. So it just buried it away. And by compression, it got very, very concentrated. And so now we've burned and we continue to burn the equivalent of millions of years of concentrated energy in just a few years. That's what has propelled our society and made it the dazzling thing that it is right now. It gives us electronics like the ones that you and I are talking to each other over at the moment. But unfortunately, the waste products of that, some of them are noticeable like soot. We've learned how to control soot somewhat, but the invisible ones, methane and CO2 and nitrous oxide, well, actually, I haven't mentioned nitrous oxide yet. That's what's, you know, packing the atmosphere with all this insulation. Nitrous oxide is a byproduct of something you mentioned before, nitrogen fertilizer. The fact that we grow so much food based because we can use nitrogen fertilizer, it's kind of miraculous, except it takes an awful lot of fossil fuel to create nitrogen fertilizer. And then when it breaks down, it breaks down into nitrous oxide. So that makes the way we grow plants using nitrogen, the way we grow food using nitrogen, one of the chief contributors of greenhouse gases. And then you add to it the fact that we are already taking up you know, nearly half the unfrozen planet just to feed ourselves to grow food or you know either by cultivating or pasturing uh, animals to feed ourselves I mean that's the problem we're in so yeah in terms of what can we do well there's certain steps that we can all make you know I've made some of them uh, the electricity that's powering this phone right now comes from my solar panels which uh, there's enough to cover about 98% of the energy needs of my house. And a lot of my neighbors have done that. Uh, We got together 
all the little small towns in western Massachusetts, and we uh, shopped around for solar energy companies that would give us a good group rate, which is a wonderful tactic. It worked, and I recommend it to anybody who's listening to this thing. Organize your neighborhoods or your region, and you can find terrific tax breaks from your state and still from the federal government. Trump hasn't gotten rid of them yet. They're being phased out sometime around 2022, unless we get a different government that's going to extend them. And then just by you know, presenting a group package to solar energy companies, yeah, they will make a deal for doing that kind of business. And so the solar array that I got Ultimately, with the breaks, uh, I paid about a third of what would have been the list price on that. That's a really good thing that we can do. But frankly, all the gestures that we make personally, you know, choosing to eat less meat, and I, I just don't eat it at all. I don't eat anything pastured, but I, I've been doing that for, you know, 40-some years choosing to divest our own accounts as again i've done ever since i've had any money to put in the bank from anything that smacks of fossil fuels uh those are things that we can and we should be doing but the most important thing that we can be doing right now is electing officials who believe in science and listen to scientists political decisions involving social organization, structures, highways, roads, stuff like that. Politicians might be equipped to do that, but it it takes scientists to tell us what we need to do scientifically. And right now, the scientists, except for a couple whores who are paid handsomely by the fossil fuel industry, but it's virtually unanimous. Scientists are telling us now Stop using fossil fuels. Stop using them. Start investing like crazy in alternatives to them. And we've got to kick these bastards out of office who are denying scientific truths and elect ones that are paying attention to them. And once we do that, we got to hold their feet to the fire and make sure it was not just campaign promises. Because here in the United States, we have to remember that during the entire Clinton administration, which had Al Gore as vice president, one of our premier environmentalists, who understands this stuff extremely well. I know. I've spent time talking to the man. He really gets it. But the Clinton administration was all about the economy, stupid, and very, very little advanced the cause of getting rid of fossil fuels during that administration. In fact, that administration weakened the Kyoto Agreement. If anyone here still remembers the Kyoto Agreement, it's almost a joke to think of it now. And then during the Obama administration, one of the most brilliant scientists alive today, John Holdren, who back in 1969 was writing papers paying attention to the increase in, in CO2 in the atmosphere. He sat at Barack Obama's shoulder as his science advisor. And yet, what did Barack Obama and Joe Biden give us? They gave us fracking. This has to stop now. 
that's the most important thing that any individual can be doing right now. And that is voting, and that is taken to the streets to demand these changes. I'm not sure that's what you expected to hear, but that's what I'm saying. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable. Join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. This entire conversation, I've been listening with rapt attention. First, the, the detail and the depth and the breadth of what you, what you spoke about here and you covered in the books in far more depth and breadth and eloquence as well. Anyone could hear a lot of that and think, well, what's the point? Just we're all going to go down. But that's not what I'm hearing from you. There's, you wouldn't say the things that you just said if you didn't think there was a point to them. And the breadth of knowledge and, and what you bring to it tells me that it's not uh, pie-in-the-sky hopes. It's, not, uh, it, it's measured, thoughtful, based on history, based on science, based on personal observation. That, that adds gravity to what you said. And sorry, you're about to say? Thank you for saying that, and I was going to tell your listeners that, you know, I hope I've been articulate here, but I frankly do it much better in my books because my books I get to rewrite it over and over and over again until I finally get it right, and that little trick that I pulled with The World Without Us was so disarming for readers, it turned out, that uh, the book is now out in uh, nearly three dozen languages, so I invite you all to to read all about it, and you will hear it through some real human examples, not just me summarizing it. But to summarize everything that I just said, and in response to what you just said, we're in an existential crisis right now. That means our existence is up for grabs at the moment. If we don't take control of this thing, we are going to push the atmosphere into places that simply we've never seen before. It's going to make parts of this world unlivable, and it may, the world will go on one way or another. You know, there was five times as much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere as there is today during the Jurassic period, uh, but it was then dominated by big reptiles, not mammals, particularly. We have no idea whether we're going to be able to survive this. We, in the meantime, you know, even if we lose this battle, I think the message here is we don't go down without a fight. We do everything that we possibly can to try to hold on to the planet that allowed us to evolve because I think in their hearts, I think your listeners are going to agree with me that they still really like being a homo sapiens. Otherwise, they wouldn't still be here listening. They would have drunk themselves to death or they would have committed some kind of uh, rational suicide. That's a terrible phrase that I'm starting to hear right now in response to the climate crisis. As long as we are still here, we still enjoy the fact that human beings do wonderful things. 
we create beautiful art, we make music, and we can love. And as long as we can do those things, let's do whatever we can, whatever it's going to take to try to prolong that existence and maybe ensure its survival. Alan Weissman, thank you very much. Alan has researched firsthand more than almost anyone. He's talked to people, he's been there, he's seen things. Read the books for the detail, the breadth, the depth. He has more than enough reason to despair if he wanted to, if he found that that was what was appropriate. If he's not despairing, I conclude that everything he's found nets out to say, we can do this. Family planning, education, and contraception seem technologies and practices that can work more than any other technology that I'm aware of, or cultural change, more than carbon sequestration, solar planes, and everything else. They're cheap, they're available, they work, and we know that they work. They make sex more fun, they've overcome cultural resistance outside the gates of the Vatican. I can't say this enough, read Countdown, read The World Without Us, also read Limits to Growth. I'll do my best to bring them back. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse, and living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating Others should act first or making excuses to the empowering, I can make a difference. And living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.